Well, we're in a series, if you hadn't figured this out, called Redneck, and some of you look right at home. I just want to tell you that. Some of you took my advice and wore camouflage today. Others of you were not brave enough to do so. I just want to know, with this backdrop, can you guys see me? (laughs) Color my hair. Wow, that's good advice. Uh, We're going to begin with this premise. And uh, if you have your notes, uh, write this down. Rednecks love camouflage. It's their wardrobe of choice. In fact, some of you are wearing camouflage because you were asked to today, but you won't take it off when you go home. You'll go out to dinner. You'll wear it again tomorrow if it passes the sniff test, right? It's your wardrobe. Uh, I guess camouflage is sort of a, a hunting thing. And I'm not well-versed in hunting, and so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about stuff that I've kind of picked up off or overheard. Pam's husband, Jim, who works here with us, is a, a big hunter, and I hear him talking about his camouflage stuff and his strategies, and so let's just talk a little bit about deer hunting so you kind of get an idea of what we're talking about uh, with camouflage strategy. Uh, A deer hunter doesn't just wake up one morning and take a notion to go hunting. Did you know that? There's a lot of stuff behind that decision. They uh, spend a lot of money getting dressed up. They spray stuff on them to smell like a deer. So they can avoid being smelled. Uh, They uh, put the deer stand in a strategic location. They spend days in the woods scouting deer beforehand, uh, figuring out where their tracks are and where the stuff they leave behind is so they can get a good shot. I mean, they think about it. They dream about it. They plan it out. It's a strategy. Matter of fact, uh, camouflage in itself, if you think about it, write this down, is a device or strategy of concealment. It's, It's a strategy. It's a plan. You need to remember that later. Now, I've been hunting a time or two. In fact, I can remember one particular occasion. I had gone to court days in Mount Sterling. Anybody ever been to court days in Mount Sterling? You're a redneck. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you can't walk down the sidewalk for being careful of stepping into back a spit at court days. It's just that way. And while we were there, my dad traded to get me a shotgun. And I still am the owner of a 410 shotgun. I'm going to get my picture made with that sometime. Maybe today since I'm dressed halfway for it. And my dad took me hunting when I was eight years old. 
First time I ever went, and we went, we didn't strategize much. We just kind of walked out in the woods with our guns. We lived over in Hebron at that time, and we went hunting back near the Kennedy Pay Lake. Anybody remember the Kennedy Pay Lake? Three of us. The rest of you have no culture. (laughs) And so we're back in that area, and we see a squirrel. And my dad said to me, shoot. So I got my gun up in position. I sighted it, and I pulled the trigger. It kicked me back about 20 feet. (laughs) And then I saw the squirrel drop from the tree. Wow, my first kill. My dad said maybe we could get a little meat out of that. It looked to me like it was, like I'd ripped it asunder, really. It looked bad. Died a horrible death. And I got to thinking about that squirrel and eating it. And I got real sad. I said, we need to bury that fella. (laughs) And sure enough, we did. As a matter of fact, if you could get on the grounds of the airport now where that northern runway runs, that squirrel is buried about 20 feet from one of those yellow lights. You could see my uh, tussle with redneckism right there. But I want us to think today about why people camouflage, or or why hunters, why why we dress, or you dress this way. It's that strategy, but it also, you strategize because you know you may have one chance to kill a deer. You may have one chance to shoot a turkey. And you want to put yourself in the very best position to carry out the hunting strategy. So you dress this way, you smell that way, you're in that position, so you will have a chance to strike at the optimum time and seize the moment. Seize the moment. All of us are aware that there are opportunities in life that only come maybe once or twice. And if you don't seize the moment, you miss out on the opportunity that's been placed before you. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you've probably never heard. You've never heard this sentence. God loves camouflage. God loves camouflage. You're saying, whoa, that's a stretch. That's hard to believe. You know, how do, how do you know that God loves camouflage? Well, it's all over the Scripture. I want you to think about it. God conceals things, God even conceals people in order to put them in a place where they have the optimum moment, opportunity to do something that otherwise they wouldn't have a chance to do. Remember Joseph? Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Joseph and Benjamin were the two youngest. The other 10 were older. Their mother was Leah whom Jacob kind of got tricked into marrying, Rachel, whom he loved, birthed Joseph and Benjamin. And so Joseph and Benjamin were Jacob's favorite sons. And Joseph was excited about being the favorite son. He kind of lorded it over his brothers. 
Uh, he mocked them. He wore this, not camouflage, but a coat with all sorts of colors in it. And uh, everywhere he went, he acted like he was more important than those around him. So his brothers finally had enough. One of them said, let's shoot him. Yep. So they said, well, that's a redneck thing to do. Let's just bury him in a, in a, in a pit over here. So that's what they did. They placed him in a pit. They uh, uh, waited till slave traders came by, and they sold their brother to the slave traders. He was taken to Egypt. They covered that coat that he was so proud of with blood, took it to their dad, and said a wild animal, a lion, had killed Joseph. So Joseph winds up in Egypt. He becomes a servant, a slave, working in the house of a guy by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar had an attractive wife. The wife took a liking to Joseph, tried to get him to do things they shouldn't have done. Uh, Joseph ran, escaped. She told Potiphar that it was Joseph's idea. Potiphar had him put in prison. So let's follow Joseph's life. His family sold him into slavery. Dad thinks he's dead was a servant, now he's in jail. God is camouflaging Joseph, right? He has the ability, though, God gives him the ability in prison to start to explain dreams of his fellow prisoners. He explains, eventually, other people's dreams. The baker in the house of Pharaoh, who then tells Pharaoh about Joseph. Pharaoh's having this dream. It's reoccurring. He brings Joseph to him. Joseph hears his dream, and God gave him the words to say, there's going to be a great famine. You need to start saving grain, building up a storehouse to deal with that famine. And then eventually, the famine strikes, and Joseph's family, his brothers, come from Israel. They need food to eat. And at that moment, God pulls the camouflage off of Joseph, and he saves his family. Such a good job of saving them that they all moved to Egypt. And the Israelites were a lot more prolific than the Egyptians, and they began to expand their family. And matter of fact, they were starting to overrun the land of Egypt. There almost were more Israelites than Egyptians living in Egypt. And so they decided, the Pharaoh decided, we're going to put a stop to this. We're going to kill every Hebrew child. We're not going to let them have any more kids. There's too many of them. And there was a lady named Jochebed who was pregnant. I always hold my belly out a little further when I don't really need to, when I talk about somebody being pregnant, right? Not that funny, guys. Jochebed is pregnant. She gives birth to this baby boy, and it was as if she could tell that this boy was important. She took extreme measures to save his life. She placed him in a reed basket and floated him down the Nile River right past the palace of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's daughter, saw baby Moses in that basket. And she, well, she had that same emotion that most every woman 
I've ever seen has when they see a baby. They get the fever. They get the fever. Oh, look at you. You know, I'm just going to be honest with you. Most of the time when babies are born, they're pretty ugly. Right? You ever notice that? When Tyler was born, he was a conehead. They sucked him out. And, and people oohed and nod. I'm thinking, man, I don't, he, he looks like his mom, not me. Well, she got baby fever. I want that boy. Over the way, hiding in the bulrushes was Moses' mother. And the moment Pharaoh's daughter picked up that baby, here she came. Sure would be a big help to you. I'd like to be the nanny. So God camouflages Moses. He is raised in Pharaoh's palace, learning the ins and outs of how that particular household and government was run. He grows into a man, has a heart for his people, because his mother's been right there with him, telling him who he really is. He sees an Egyptian soldier harassing, beating one of his people. And in a fit of anger, Moses kills the Egyptian soldier. And he heads on the lamb. Forty years in the wilderness. And eventually, God decided the camouflage needed to come off. Everything had been hidden, and the burning bush appeared. God said, Moses, I know you have no idea why you've been where you've been and what you've done, what you've done, but I've got a purpose for you. No one knows who you are, but suddenly you're going to be the deliverer of my people. You're going to bring them home where they belong. Camouflage. Nehemiah found himself uh, in the Babylonian Empire, working alongside the king. God placed him in a camouflage position. A Hebrew boy from Jerusalem in the king's palace. He had a terrible job. If you think your job is bad, let me tell you what Nehemiah did. He was the cupbearer for the king. Kings were always afraid in those days of assassination, and one of the easiest ways to assassinate a king, I don't want to put any ideas in anybody's head, was to poison their beverages. And Nehemiah got the pleasure of taking a drink out of every cup of fluid that the king was about to drink to be sure It wasn't poisonous. That's a bad job. I I got to thinking about this the other day when I was kind of getting ready for this message. You know Kent Holland, the guy who was up here singing? He's a germaphobe. If he would have been the king, he'd just had to die because he won't drink after anybody. (laughs) Not that I'm strategizing. Uh, So he's there with the king, and the king looks at Nehemiah. They're tight by now. Here's the guy saving his life. And and he said, Nehemiah, you look downcast. You look sad. And Nehemiah takes the camouflage off and said, the city, Jerusalem, where I was born, is in ruin. And the king, because of that relationship with Nehemiah, gave him the ability and the wherewithal to go back and rebuild the city. Ever read the book of Esther? Esther wore camouflage, in case women didn't think you could. 
she wore camouflage. They were having in that particular locale a mod- or, or an ancient The Bachelor show. Anybody here watch The Bachelor? I don't believe in reincarnation, but if I were to ever change my mind and flip on that, I want to come back as The Bachelor. <laughs> Whoever he is, right? So they bring all of these women in before the king, King Artaxerxes. And, and, and they say to him, you have your choice to make queen any of these women. There's a passel of them. All want to be the queen. Let me tell you about Esther. I don't know a better way to say this. Esther was smoking hot. <laughs> Bible says it better, but that's what it means. I'm going to just tell you. And so God camouflaged her in her beauty. And the king didn't even look at the other women. He just said, I want her. That's how hot she was. Her right there. You watch the Miss America concert, or sorry, concert contest, right? Sometimes they sing. But you watch that, you, you kind of look and say, well, any of them would do. But Esther stood out among them all, camouflaged. A few years later, the king issued a decree the advice of his underlings that every Hebrew be killed in the land. And Esther said, King, husband, you're going to have to start with me. That's my lineage. That's my heritage. And because she was there in that place camouflaged, the king went back on that decree. You see, all through history, God has camouflaged people so they could seize the moment, to strike at an optimum time, to be in a place where they would be ready to make a difference for him. Happened with Paul in prison. He was in prison winning those around him, the guards and other prisoners, to Christ in faith in his camouflaged prison clothes. But ultimately, it happened in Jesus Christ. Jesus is camouflage. Think about the whole story of his life and his ministry and his death. Jesus was born to an unknown common teenage girl, Mary, to a redneck carpenter, Joseph, born without much acclaim, For a nation looking for a Messiah, there really wasn't a lot of news about the Messiah coming. Just a few folks knew. Born in a stable, behind an inn, in a town in the middle of nowhere. Raised in another redneck town. If Jesus would have been born today, Burlington would have been too fancy a place. For him to be born. He'd had to go to Bellevue or Rabbit Ash. (laughs) 30 years of his life he spent building furniture. Oldest son took over his father's business. Normality, quietness, hidden, camouflage. And then the time was right. And God said to his son, 
This is what you were created for. This is why I sent you. Into the wilderness he went because that's where you go to get ready. Tempted by Satan. Commissioned by ministry. Baptized by John. He began to teach and preach in ways that were radical, that were powerful, that were attention-grabbing, said things nobody had ever said before, claimed himself to be God, healed the sick, caused the wind and the waves to cease. My favorite miracle, multiplied food. Everywhere he went, little by little, a piece of camouflage came off. Interesting, he went to his hometown. And there in Nazareth, where folks knew him, because of how camouflaged his life had been, they couldn't even begin to accept the idea that this teacher, this carpenter-turned-teacher, was Messiah. And they literally ran him out of town. He gathered his disciples around him, and he had to tell them over and over again, here's who I really am. They'd seen everything that he could do. They had seen his power. They had heard his words, and yet he was so camouflaged that they couldn't quite grasp the truth. That this man was God himself in human form. Jesus was camouflage. You remember when he had finally got his disciples to the place where, where he thought that, that maybe they could go out and do some ministry without him. And he calls them together and he gives them their pep talk and he says, I'm going to send you out, you're going to go two by two and Peter, you and Andrew are going to go this direction, and John and James this way. Judas, I wonder who got stuck with Judas. I don't know. You're going to go this way. And share the faith. And some will listen. Some will respond. And there will be those who push you aside. Remember he said, shake the dust off your feet. But did you remember this verse? Matthew 16, 18. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Let's say you're one of the disciples and you're sitting there around the, uh, the fire. Jesus is commissioning you. And he says to you, go preach the gospel Be like a snake and be like a dove. Now, there's a certain amount of tension there, isn't there? How can you be a snake and a dove? A snake is a snake sneaking around, ready to bite you. And a dove is what floats down from heaven when Jesus gets baptized, the symbol of purity. And I think Jesus' strategy of evangelism that he was sharing with his disciples had that tension where he said to them, 
You've got to be like a dove in a sense that you've got to be pure and holy and set aside, and you've got to be different and better. But you've got to be like a snake because there will be some people who, if they know why you're there, they won't listen to you. They'll just turn you off. You've got to kind of slither in, sneak in. Kind of interesting, isn't it? That if you're really going to be who you ought to be as an evangelist, as a, a witness, that you're going to have to have a couple of sides to you. A couple of sides. Another place in Scripture it says this. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2. Paul said, who being in the form of God didn't consider it robbery to claim to be God, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. What's that say to you? If you have no reputation, you are camouflaged. Becoming a bondservant, coming in the likeness of him. And Jesus, being found in the appearance of man, humbled himself and became obedient, even obedient to the death of the cross. Had no reputation. Camouflaged. You see, what I think Jesus was saying is very simply this. I came to change the world. And I'm going to commission every disciple, you and I today, all who follow me, to change the world. And if you're going to change the world, you're going to be called to the ministry of camouflage. Think about that. You're going to be called to be a person who can make a difference for my kingdom and people's lives. Now you say, what does that look like? Am I supposed to just go around and Act like I don't know the Lord? Am I supposed to just sneak up like people, like a snake on people? What am I supposed to do? Let me tell you about how we do it here. You didn't even know we were camouflaging stuff. Let me tell you how we do ministry here. Let's start with the kids. We have umpteen preschoolers and, and, and school-age kids back in this building. We keep them back in that building so they can be as loud as they want. Because we don't say to those kids, go over there in that building and sit there and be still and pay attention and don't move and don't talk. No, we send Chad over there and he drives them crazy. He's dressed up like something every week and they're down there laughing and they're having fun. They're having a great time. They can't wait to get here. And before they know it, camouflage is taking place and they're starting to hear about Jesus. And we have baptized kid after kid after kid because they find this place a fun place to come. And they hear about Jesus in the process. Anybody here been over to the youth room? Some of you have. The rest of you need to get around more. You walk down that basement and the church transforms. There's ratty, natty, gross furniture. 
stuff that a snake might crawl out of at any moment. There's ping pong tables, pool tables, foosball tables. There's a, here's why I go, there's a milkshake machine. I mean, it's a really cool place. It looks like anything but a church. And every Wednesday night, it's full of teenagers who've come to hang with their friends and to have fun. And before they know it, they're hearing about Jesus. Their lives are being changed. And then they go back to their schools. Because they've learned about Jesus, though they look like the other kids carrying their books and their backpacks, they're camouflaged in Christ. And they make a difference in their school because of the ministry of this church. There's some of you guys who... who uh, you couldn't bear to wear camouflage today because you can't walk out of your house without a tie. Everywhere you go, you wear a tie. I think my dad, that day we went hunting, wore a tie. I mean, it's just who you are. You're the starch shirt people. And that's cool. That's good. You go to work, and, and you look like everyone else there at your job, and you're all dressed to the T, and you're talking about business and talking about what the stock market's doing and drinking Starbucks and you're, you're you know, fitting right in. And, and you're camouflaged because before you know it, they're so into everything that's happening, you get a chance to talk about what God's doing in your life, to make an imprint on those people that you work with. Something will happen in their life and you'll get to minister to them. You'll get to say, here's what God does for me and what he could do for you because you've been camouflaged. There are others of you, uh, you wouldn't wear a tie if, if you had to. Uh, you you kind of work out in the, in the common world. You're a blue-collar worker. And you dress like the folks that you work with and and, you know, they don't always hear you talk about the Lord, but every once in a while you'll hit your thumb with a hammer and you won't say what you really wanted to say. And they'll say, when I hit my thumb, I would have said this. Why didn't you say this? And you say, well, my preacher would get on me on Sunday. And you get a chance to slip in the gospel because you're not so different from them that you don't have credibility with them. It's the ministry of camouflage. There's mom and dad. Your parent, raise your hand. Raise two if you got more than one. <laughs> Do you know that every day in your house is an opportunity to be real? To be who you are? Not some sanctified, holy warrior but a mom and a dad. Every day in your house is a chance for you to plant seeds of faith. And at some point in time, your kids are going to wake up to what you never really just specifically said to them. They're going to wake up to the fact there's something different about my mom. There's something different about my dad. They're, they're planting truth in me that I never even knew that I had. It may take till they're 70. But they're going to remember 
They're going to remember what you poured into them. They're going to remember that you cared enough to point them to faith. You don't have to stand in the dinner table with a Bible bigger than your head and read the King James and get them to say verily, verily to, to, to share Jesus. You just got to live the faith. And every day, they learn from you. I talk to couples about getting married, and I say, I say to the young ladies, I say, do you know that what you know about being a wife you learn from your mother? And they'll go, oh my gosh, no. It's true. A chance to plant faith, mom and dad. When I was uh, 40 years ago when I was a baby or a teenager, one of those two, I'd go to church. And every sermon would be the same. It would take different themes, but it would be there's a heaven and there's a hell. And you're sorry and you're no good. And if you don't shape up or let God shape you up, if you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell. When, when the evangelist would come for the week-long revival, he would preach louder than the regular preacher and his hell would seem hotter than the regular preachers. Remember those days, guys? And if you didn't preach that sermon, you weren't a preacher. And they would have a deacon's meeting about you. Preach harder, harder. You know, hell's a real place, guys. It's reality. Heaven's a real place. Eternity's forever. Sin is a part of all of our lives, and you get to choose between heaven and hell because Christ died for you. But it seemed like in those days we tried to scare people into heaven and out of hell. When Jesus came to love us into that place and away from hell. Remember we used to have gospel tracts. Remember those? And, and, and the gospel tracts were, were, were so much about hell that they were hot when you picked them up. Remember that? And you'd pass them to your coworker. You're going to go to hell if you don't fix this today, you know, right? We learned along the way that our culture would never be changed that way. We've learned to love people and to strike at the optimum moment the divine appointment from God. We've learned to be genuine and authentic and, and to use the chips we build up, to use the credibility that we build up among people who will not make heaven unless we seize that moment when God gives it to us. We've learned to love people. And we've learned for them to make heaven, it'll be because of our influence. You're called to the ministry of camouflage, of loving people without hitting them over the head with your Bible, of loving people without threatening with hell, of loving people so that God in his grace and his mercy 
can reach to that low place where they're at and lift them up. The ministry of camouflage. And I promise you that every single person in this room will have one of those moments, one of those times where God says they're ready right now. Hit them with your best shot right now. Tell them how much I love them. And you'll get a chance not just to go to heaven, but to take somebody with you. Isn't that amazing? Will you have another more important moment than that in your life? I don't think so. You're called to the ministry of camouflage. And listen to me. There will be a day. There will be a day when everything that's been covered will be revealed. There will be a day when this anonymous Lamb of God, this baby born in Bethlehem, who came quietly and humbly and anonymously into the world, there will be a day when you'll look into the sky. You'll look into the eastern sky and you'll see a white horse. And you will see glory falling. You'll see the bride of Christ. You'll see Jesus himself. The Bible says every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There'll be no more camouflage. Every tongue will confess that he's Lord. Paul said, I'll be all things to all people so that I can win some. He wore his camouflage. You see, when that day comes, that day comes when everything is revealed, all that matters All that will matter is your witness and those who you have won for Jesus. That's all that will matter. That's what life is all about. So, wear these proudly, but be ready to rip them off one day. When God comes back, pray with me. Thank you, Father, for this ministry that you've called us to. Thank you that, that you are strategic in what you do and that you've called us and, and given us a calling, a strategy, a blessing, a story to tell. There are people where we work, where we go to school, who live next door to us. There are people in our families that needs to hear, that need desperately to hear story of salvation, the story of your love. Give us those moments. Prepare us so that we can be your hands and feet, your testimony. Father, there are people in this room right now who are bearing burdens. Every Sunday I hear stories of folks who who are just so troubled and struggling and wounded. and, And I just pray that you'd be encouragement to them today. There are people in this room, Father, who who can't camouflage their salvation because they don't know you as Savior and Lord. They're not sure where they're going to spend eternity. There are people in this room right now, Father, that need to step forward and claim you, to admit their need and claim you. 
There are people in this room, Father, right now who who are so far from you. They don't need to camouflage because there's nothing about them that looks like you. They're miserable. They're empty. Father, would you once again draw them to you and restore them? Whatever burden we bear, whatever sorrow, whatever grief, whatever hurt, be given to you today, Father, right here, right now. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. This invitation is your chance, your opportunity to do business with God, to lay down those burdens, to pick up encouragement and faith. Come and share a time at this altar. Come and pray. Pray for that divine appointment in your life. Come share communion, a chance with a friend or family member or with me to say thank you, Jesus, for loving me enough to die for me. Wow, what a moment. Whatever God asks you to do, do it now. You leave here, you'll be sorry you didn't. So come as we sing.